441, Chapter 55 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 2358. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 441, Listen. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are well. I find it so funny that that has become, it's kind of my mantra, because I know for some listeners hearing the, the music that we've been using for the last almost 11 years is one of those uh, Pavlovian triggers that allows you to relax knowing that you are going to hear a really great book. And for me, over time, I mean, it started as, what, the Seinfeld joke? The hello! It started goofy, and now I can't start the show any other way. I don't know how to start recording without saying that. So if it annoys you, I am so sorry. (laughs) But I don't seem to be able to stop. (sighs) Oh, well. Today's episode has a fantastic chapter, but not for the reasons that we've had fantastic chapters so far. This one's very, very different. And you have to listen really closely to Dumas in order to catch what he's doing. But before we get to talking about that listening, something happened to me yesterday after the crafty chat, and I've gone back and forth with myself about whether I should share it with you or not. And finally, I thought, if I don't share it with you, what is the point of me doing a podcast? If you do not live in the States, you still may have noticed that people have gotten upset here lately. And that goes on both sides. I have a good friend who politically, not socially, but politically is... I don't want to say in opposition to me because she's not. There's a lot of stuff that we agree on. But there are some some things that people will vote very specifically for that we we take different stances on. However, she's a friend. I love her to death. She's an amazing person. And she's a knitter. And as a consequence, she and I have managed to do one of those things that people keep saying no one can do, which is we actually have found a way to talk about where we're coming from. So, for example, I don't know anyone who doesn't want their children to have a good life, to be well-educated, to make sure that they are well-loved and taken care of and treated with respect. I don't think there's anyone who disagrees with that. Her thoughts and my thoughts on how to ensure that that can happen for the majority of children turns out to be pretty similar with some noted differences partly because I taught high school in a public school, and partly because she is on the board of a charter school. We've seen different things happen, but because my son was in a charter school for a little while and a private school for a little while, and at actually two different private schools for a little while, and then at public school as well, I have a 
different set of experiences from hers. So when we discuss stuff, we have different sets of information that we can bring to the table. This is not a surprise. I've seen this happen on the Craftlit Ravelry chat page, and it's one of the things that I love about you. Something very different happened yesterday, and it was good, but it blew both of us away, and we're trying to figure out how we can take this and use it to the betterment of mankind, because she mentioned the really affronting and upsetting pictures that she had seen of women's marches all over the, well, all over the world, but certainly she was looking at the ones from the United States. And she went on with what she, the point she was making. And I said, wait, 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 back up. Because I was in Brussels when this happened. So the only news that I saw at that point was either the BBC or the international CNN or international MSNBC or the international Herald Tribune paper. So I wasn't sure what she was talking about. And we both assumed at first that I had been seeing completely different news in Europe than she had been seeing in the States. And then we started comparing sources. The images that she had seen were coming to her primarily on her Facebook feed. She read other things from other sources. She, like me, tends to try and read from lots of places. So she is not a Johnny OneNote on this by a long shot. But the images that she saw were coming across her Facebook feed. The majority of the images that I saw were also coming across my Facebook feed. Now, I'm very careful not to click on clickbait or advertisements or anything like that. In fact, if there's something that I want to go look at somewhere else, I will right-click on the thing and then copy-paste it so that Facebook isn't tracking my choices and my information because I don't want to muddy the waters of my Facebook feed. But all of the pictures that I saw were harmonious pictures of men and women walking together with children and smiling and laughing and happy. And all of the pictures that she saw were angry, screaming women wearing specific parts of the female anatomy as hats or headdresses or full body costumes. When I went to look for similar pictures, when, uh, when we'd gotten off the phone together, I had no trouble finding them when I was searching specifically for them. But again, if I just looked up in general, the Women's March, the pictures that I saw were happy and not at all angry, very inclusive. In fact, I, I read a really lovely piece about a transgender woman in Portland, Oregon, maybe. She had recently moved and she didn't know anyone and she was afraid that she would be rejected because anatomically she hadn't completely become female yet. And instead, that's not what happened. And so again, the stories that were coming to me were ones of inclusion and joy and not angry, screaming people. So then she and I, realizing that this had everything to do with our Facebook feeds, we started talking about articles that we had read separate from Facebook and what was coming up on her browser more quickly or, or higher in her Google searches than the things that were coming up quicker in my Google searches and where we were getting our news from. And as we talked and compared what these discrepancies, enormous discrepancies in news coverage, what became really clear is I finally said, oh my God, so when I say how 
wonderful I thought the Women's March was, anyone who has a Facebook feed similar to yours hears me say how much I approve of screaming angry women wearing body parts as costumes. And she said, yes, that's correct. And I said, and when I hear you say, or not you because she wasn't, but anyone on the other side of the political spectrum or not, could be someone who's right next door to me, saying how offended they were by the Women's March. What I hear is that you hate seeing women walking together, marching together in a show of solidarity and joy. And we both got really, really quiet (laughs) because the implications of that go way beyond people screaming, oh, it's all fake news. This showed us that the discrepancies in news coverage and the way that algorithms are working online means that we are fundamentally talking about completely separate things that happen to have the same name. For example, again, when we were talking about the travel ban, she was talking very specifically about needing to fix loose borders where illegal immigrants were coming in and causing trouble. And if you watched uh, Nancy Pelosi's town hall, you heard from some very moving stories from people who live on the Texas-Mexico border. And their stories are unlike any stories that you would hear, like even in Phoenix. So whether or not I think that the travel ban is a good idea, her discussion of the travel ban is very specific and coming from stories like that, uh, border stories. And, and people who've had cartels in their backyards doing horrible, horrible things, truly horrible, horrible things. My understanding of the problem with the travel ban comes from me having friends who are Iranian, who are Muslim from any country. To me, that's what the travel ban means. It is a stop on legal immigration to an extent that a friend of mine who I've known for almost 20 years, when worked with for almost 20 years, two of her cousins who had worked for 14 years and spent thousands of dollars to get their green cards. They qualified for their green cards. They got the information uh, early January. They had to come to the States to pick up their green cards before April 1st and happened to get on a plane the Saturday morning after the ban had been written. They were turned away at the gate. And it's only because my friend was able to access a a really good travel lawyer that the girls were able to get here at all. They were finally allowed in on that weekend when Lufthansa was saying, "Okay, we're going to take everybody. And there was a lot of back and forthing for a little while. To me, the amount of vetting that legal immigrants go through is honestly, it feels obscene. So this idea of extreme vetting has made me laugh this whole time because I know what my brother-in-laws had to go through, what other friends have had to go through. It is not like we have a porous legal immigration system. It's exceedingly expensive and time-consuming. And if you don't have a lawyer, it's going to be that much worse, which I think might even be an indication of why some people just say, well, hang it, I'm going to come in illegally because there's no way I could manage to come in legally. And as we were talking through this, we realized that once again, here is an issue where when I talk about immigration being broken 
I'm talking about legal immigration being broken and needing to be overhauled and fixed and corrected. And she, when she's talking about immigration being broken, is talking about a porous border that allows drug cartel members to kill people in the backyards of law-abiding Americans. These are two fundamentally different conversations. Unfortunately, they both use the word immigration, which puts us at a horrible disadvantage as a culture, as a society, because we think we're being perfectly clear. She thinks she's being perfectly clear. I think I'm being perfectly clear. But it was only when we stopped and started asking each other questions about definitionally, what are we talking about, that it started to become clear that we agreed on pretty much everything. But it sure didn't sound like we did when we started talking. As the conversation continued, she and I started to say, we need to do something about this, like, like take screenshots of our Facebook feed and put them side by side on a blog so that people can start to see, really visibly see what's being done to us. And we both agreed that this is another one of those cases, like if you saw all the president's men, follow the money. Who benefits? If this law passes, who benefits? If this person gets a, a long-term appointment to a position or gets put on a cabinet or, or whatever, who's going to benefit financially? Because it's starting to look really clear to both of us that that's really, totally the crux of the matter. People who are ideologically invested, left or right, can be really easily manipulated. And the more we talked, the more it became clear that the people who were going to be benefiting financially from the topics, the specific touchstones that we were discussing, weren't going to be the people who were involved in the ramped up conversation. So we're getting wound up here in the United States believing terrifyingly often the worst of the people on the other side, which puts us in positions where we're very angry and scared, which means when we're able to have a conversation with someone, especially someone we don't know very well, it makes it very easy to other them. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, right? Because we have Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker, outsiders, people who weren't part of the main society those people get vilified, whether it's Jews in Germany being compared to rodents or anyone who uses emotionally laden stories as a justification for what they believe is the right way to go, calling them special snowflakes. It's the same thing. Snowflakes, of course, not being quite so bad as rodents, but still, it's this otherness that we're allowed to paste over the faces of people who we might otherwise get along with really well. I am forever coming back to you as touchstones when I have these conversations with people because I'm able to say, no, but I know people. I know really good people who don't agree with whatever the mechanism is that you're talking about. But they do agree with all of these other facets of the argument that's being made, which means there's a lot more common ground than we're allowed to see. But my friend and I are able to have this conversation with each other 100% because we are both approaching the conversation without anger or rancor or acrimony. We assume the best of each other. 
we know we love our children. We know we would never do anything that might compromise the safety of our families, our children's families, our extended friends and families. And this isn't someone who has been living under a rock, who I'm having conversations with. She's lived in many different countries. She has seen more of the world than most people ever will be lucky enough to have. She is not small-minded or closed-minded. She simply has different mechanisms that she think would be better or stronger or faster than the ones that I tend to go for. And that's it. And you can have a rational conversation about those mechanisms, but not if my position had been to go in already angry at her for the pictures that I see on my Facebook feed or some of the articles that have come across that are so appalling and angry and not just tonally angry, but the the violence of the language that's being used in these articles about women and the Women's March. When I read them to her, she was horrified and also horrified, not just that I'd found this and that somebody had had the gall to write it, but horrified that she was being lumped in the same category as this vile person just because the mechanisms she thought would work better were different. She has been ripped apart online and she watched some other people get ripped apart online by knitters. And I kept saying, how can that be? And she said, I know, I don't get it. I didn't think that's what we were like. I thought knitters were capable of, and not just capable of, but heartened by the generosity of spirit that comes with making beautiful things for other people, giving beautiful things for other people to other people. And there was a community there that transcended all sorts of stuff. But that hasn't been what she saw recently. People make horrible assumptions about her ethics and morals based on a stereotype that they have. Well, if you're going to vote for that guy, that must mean you're, you can fill in the blank, racist, sexist, anti-gay, anti-gay marriage. You know, you can run down the list of all of the, the hot button issues. And in fact, none of the things that she was accused of were true. But the worst part is that the attack started by her asking a question, a question that revealed which side she most likely stood on, but certainly didn't expose her as a hateful person. But that's how people treated her when they came back, because they didn't listen. And it absolutely broke my heart, because, of course, it makes it much harder for her to hear any other possible solution or, or another side to the argument, because why would you? If people are coming out ripping into you, why would you listen? How is that an effective way to communicate? My God, look at the way the Count of Monte Cristo works his magic. He knows how to talk to people and to convince them and to work with them and to convince them that they came up with the idea in the first place often, much like Benjamin Franklin used to do, was one of his superpowers. He could convince people to do the thing he wanted them to do and at the same time make them think that they came up with the idea themselves and took credit for it. That is a superpower I wish I had certainly be much more useful than draining watch batteries. But, <laughs> but that was not the way it was meant to be. So I know that was long and I haven't done anything like this for a really, really long time. But 
every time I hear people saying stereotypical things about people who disagree with them on some hot button topic of the day, I always come back to you. How sane, how smart, how level headed, how insightful, how wonderful you are. And not just generically wonderful, but wonderful to each other. And how much you're willing to listen to each other, even when the discussions are difficult. She and I both spent a lot of time on the phone asking each other, wait, 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 where did you read that? And then looking for the data. And I was wrong as often as she was, because the data that I'd been seeing, again, on my Facebook feed, was obviously skewed in one direction and vice versa. And it was only when we came together and were willing to learn from the other point of view and not assume, well, you disagree with me, therefore you're dangerous and crazy and can't possibly have any logical reasoning behind what you think. It was only when we got past that weirdness that that we were both able to learn a lot. And I have a feeling at heart that's one of the things that makes you different and better. None of us are afraid of learning. And there are so many people who seem to be really afraid of learning. A listener who has been with us forever, she and I were talking about the homeschooling she does. And she is a mother and an educator who absolutely walks the walk. But she is also a mother and an educator who has her children and her students read things like Oscar Wilde. and understand all about Oscar Wilde and who he was and what he did and what happened to him. This is what I've always felt. If your faith is too weak to be able to stand up to a question or someone who sees things differently, then the problem isn't the question. It's a problem with your faith being too weak. And I put my faith in you every day and you've never let me down. So thank you. Please model how to listen and ask questions of people who you are pretty sure you completely disagree with. And let them hear that you're genuinely curious and that you want to understand. Because they're going to be more likely to hear you after you've heard them. And it might be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. But it's amazing what happens when it works. And it breaks my heart that we've gotten to a point where we are so separated, not because of us, but because of the manipulation of corporations or people or groups of people who are going to benefit off of our discord. That makes me really angry. And on that note, I'm getting very close to being able to start recording 1984. And I've been thinking more. 1984, true believer, brave new world. These will all have to be just the notes versions because I don't have the rights to any of these books, but they're too important not to be taking a look at right now, both for the reasons you think and probably for reasons you haven't considered yet. And that's why it's taking me a little longer to prep because it's more complicated than I had thought. And that's a good thing. I like it. There's been a lapse in getting the cat came back audio out to you. That's because my husband, along with everybody else, is sick in the household and you wouldn't be able to hear him. It doesn't matter how closely I put the mic to his mouth, you wouldn't be able to hear him. So we're waiting until he can record again. And that's that. 
All right, enough yammering. Count of Monte Cristo this week is so awesome and so confusing at first. Remember at the end of the previous episode, the Count's servant, Batista, came in and said that the Count would be unable to dine with Albert and his mother. And this was because he had gentlemen who were imminently arriving and going to have dinner with him at his place. This was not a lie. And we see the first gentleman's arrival in our chapter today, chapter 55. The interplay of dialogue between these two men, because this is a very dialogue-heavy chapter, and you can really see that Dumas was a playwright when you get chapters like this coming across. The conversation between these two guys, Count of Monte Cristo and Cavalcante, who was introduced by name only in the previous chapter, is so complicated in its nuance that I found myself getting about five, maybe ten minutes into the chapter and then rewinding to listen again. Mostly because I kept thinking, wow, I must have misunderstood that. I go back and listen. No, no, I heard it right. Okay. And I, I kept having this happen over and over again. I'd rewind, listen to a little bit more again. Mm, no, no, I was right. Until finally by the end, very close to the end of the chapter, it dawned on me what was happening. So, so see if you can catch on earlier than I did. <laughs> I am sure that will not be a problem, but it's, oh, it's really well written. And uh, we'll have to talk about that on the flip side. So here you go with chapter 55 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 55. Major Cavalcanti. Both the Count and Baptistin had told the truth when they announced to Morcerf the proposed visit of the Major, which had served Monte Cristo as a pretext for declining Albert's invitation. Seven o'clock had just struck, and Monsieur Bertuccio, according to the command which had been given him, had two hours before left for Auteuil, when a cab stopped at the door, and after depositing its occupant at the gate, immediately hurried away, as if ashamed of its employment. The visitor was about fifty-two years of age, dressed in one of the green surtouts, ornamented with black frogs, which have so long maintained their popularity all over Europe. He wore trousers of blue cloth, boots tolerably clean, but not of the brightest polish, and a little too thick in the soles, Buckskin gloves, a hat somewhat resembling in shape those usually worn by the gendarme, and a black cravat striped with white, which, if the proprietor had not worn it of his own free will, might have passed for a halter, so much did it resemble one. Such was the picturesque costume of the person who rang at the gate, and demanded if it was not at number 30 in the Avenue de Champs-Élysées that the Count of Monte Cristo lived, and who, being answered by the porter in the affirmative, entered, closed the gate after him, and began to ascend the steps. The small and angular head of this man, his white hair and thick grey moustache, caused him to be easily recognised by Baptistin, who had received an exact description of the expected visitor, and who was awaiting him in the hall. Therefore, scarcely had the stranger time to pronounce his name before the Count was apprised of his arrival. He was ushered into a simple and elegant drawing-room, and the Count rose to meet him with a smiling air. "'Ah, my dear sir, you are most welcome. 
I was expecting you. Indeed, said the Italian. Was your excellency then aware of my visit? Yes, I had been told that I should see you today at seven o'clock. Then you have received full information concerning my arrival. Of course. Ah, so much the better. I fear this little precaution might have been forgotten. What precaution? That of informing you beforehand of my coming. Oh, no, it has not. But you are sure you are not mistaken? Very sure. It really was I whom your excellency expected at seven o'clock this evening. I will prove it to you beyond a doubt. Oh, never mind that, said the Italian. It is not worth the trouble. Yes, yes, said Monte Cristo. His visitor appeared slightly uneasy. Let me see, said the Count. Are you not the Marquis Bartolomeo Cavalcanti? Bartolomeo Cavalcanti? joyfully replied the Italian. Yes, I am really he. Ex-major in the Austrian service. Was I a major? timidly asked the old soldier. Yes, said Monte Cristo. You were a major. This is the title the French give to the post which you filled in Italy. Very good, said the major. I do not demand more. You understand. Your visit here today is not of your own suggestion, is it? said Monte Cristo. No, certainly not. You were sent by some other person. Yes. By the excellent Abbe Busoni. Exactly so, said the delighted Major. And you have a letter. Yes, there it is. Give it to me then. And Monte Cristo took the letter, which he opened and read. The Major looked at the Count with his large, staring eyes, and then took a survey of the apartment. But his gaze almost immediately reverted to the proprietor of the room. "'Yes, yes, I see. Major Cavalcanti, a worthy patrician of Lucca, a descendant of the Cavalcanti of Florence,' continued Monte Cristo, reading aloud, "'possessing an income of half a million.' Monte Cristo raised his eyes from the paper and bowed. "'Half a million,' said he. Magnificent. Half a million, is it? said the major. Yes, in so many words, and it must be so, for the abbe knows correctly the amount of all the largest fortunes in Europe. Be it half a million, then, but on my word of honour, I had no idea that it was so much. Because you are robbed by your steward. You must make some reformation in that quarter. "'You have opened my eyes,' said the Italian gravely. "'I will show the gentleman the door.' Monte Cristo resumed the perusal of the letter. "'And who only needs one thing more to make him happy.' "'Yes, indeed but one,' said the Major with a sigh. "'Which is to recover a lost and adored son.' "'A lost and adored son.' "'stolen away in his infancy, "'either by an enemy of his noble family "'or by the gypsies.' "'At the age of five years,' "'said the Major with a deep sigh "'and raising his eye to heaven. "'Unhappy father,' said Monte Cristo. "'The Count continued. "'I have given him renewed life and hope "'in the assurance that you have the power "'of restoring the son 
whom he has vainly sought for fifteen years the major looked at the count with an indescribable expression of anxiety i have the power of so doing said monte cristo the major recovered his self-possession so then said he the letter was true to the end did you doubt it my dear monsieur bartolomeo no indeed certainly not a good man a man holding religious office as does the abbe busoni could not condescend to deceive or play of a joke but your excellency has not read it all ah true said monte cristo there is a postscript yes yes repeated the major yes there there is a postscript in order to save major cavalcanti the trouble of drawing on his banker i sent him a draft for two thousand francs to defray his travelling expenses and credit on you for the further sum of forty-eight thousand francs which you still owe me the major awaited the conclusion of the postscript apparently with great anxiety very good said the count he said very good muttered the major then sir replied he then what asked monte cristo then the postscript well what of the postscript then the postscript is as favorably received by you as the rest of the letter certainly the abbe busoni and myself have a small account open between us i do not remember if it is exactly forty-eight thousand francs which i am still owing him but i dare say we shall not dispute the difference you attach great importance then to this postscript my dear monsieur cavalcanti i must explain to you said the major that fully confiding in the signature of the abbe busoni i had not provided myself with any other funds so that if this resource had failed me i should have found myself very unpleasantly situated in paris is it possible that a man of your standing should be embarrassed anywhere said monte cristo why really i know no one said the major but then you yourself are known to others yes i am known so that proceed my dear monsieur cavalcanti so that you will remit to me these forty-eight thousand francs certainly at your first request the major's eyes dilated with pleasing astonishment but sit down said monte cristo i really do not know what i have been thinking of i have positively kept you standing for the last quarter of an hour don't mention it the major drew an armchair towards him and proceeded to seat himself now said the count what will you take a glass of port sherry or alicante alicante if you please it is my favourite wine i have some that is very good you will take a biscuit with it will you not yes i will take a biscuit as you are so obliging monte cristo rang baptistin appeared the count advanced to meet him well said he in a low voice the young man is here said the valet de chambre in the same tone into what room did you take him into the blue drawing-room according to your excellency's orders that's right 
Now bring the Alicante and some biscuits. Baptistan left the room. Really, said the Major, I am quite ashamed of the trouble I am giving you. Pray don't mention such a thing, said the Count. Baptistin re-entered with glasses, wine, and biscuits. The Count filled one glass, but in the other he only poured a few drops of the ruby-coloured liquid. The bottle was covered with spider's webs, and all the other signs which indicate the age of wine more truly than do wrinkles on a man's face. The Major made a wise choice. He took the full glass and the biscuit. The Count told Baptistin to leave the plate within reach of his guest, who began by sipping the Alicante with an expression of great satisfaction, and then delicately steeped his biscuit in the wine. "'So, sir, you lived at Luca, did you? You were rich, noble, held in great esteem, had all that could render a man happy.' "'All,' said the Major, hastily swallowing his biscuit, "'positively all.' "'And yet there was one thing wanting in order to complete your happiness.' "'Only one thing,' said the Italian. "'And that one thing, your lost child.' "'Ah,' said the Major, taking a second biscuit, "'that consummation of my happiness was indeed wanting.' The worthy Major raised his eyes to heaven and sighed. "'Let me hear, then,' said the Count, "'who this deeply regretted son was.' "'for I always understood you were a bachelor.' "'That was the general opinion, sir,' said the Major. "'And I—' "'Yes,' replied the Count, "'and you confirmed the report. "'A youthful indiscretion, I suppose, "'which you were anxious to conceal from the world at large.' "'The Major recovered himself and resumed his usual calm manner, "'at the same time casting his eyes down.' either to give himself time to compose his countenance, or to assist his imagination, all the while giving an under-look at the Count, the protracted smile on whose lips still announced the same polite curiosity. "'Yes,' said the Major, "'I did wish this fault to be hidden from every eye.' "'Not on your own account, surely,' replied Monte Cristo, "'for a man is above that sort of thing.' "'Oh, no, certainly not on my own account,' said the Major, with a smile and a shake of the head. "'But for the sake of the mother,' said the Count. "'Yes, for the mother's sake, his poor mother,' cried the Major, taking a third biscuit. "'Take some more wine, my dear Calvacanti,' said the Count, pouring out for him a second glass of Alicante. "'Your emotion has quite overcome you.' "'His "'Poor mother!' murmured the Major, trying to get the lacrimal gland in operation, so as to moisten the corner of his eye with a false tear. "'She belonged to one of the first families in Italy, I think. Did she not?' "'She was of a noble family of Fiesole, Count.' "'And her name was?' "'Do you desire to know her name?' "'Oh,' said Monte Cristo. "'It would be quite superfluous for you to tell me, for I already know it.' "'The Count knows everything,' said the Italian, bowing. "'Oliva Cossinari, was it not?' "'Oliva Cossinari. "'A marchioness.' "'A marchioness.' "'And you married her at last, notwithstanding the opposition of her family.' 
"'Yes, that was the way it ended.' "'And you have doubtless brought all your papers with you,' said Monte Cristo. "'What papers?' "'The certificate of your marriage with Oliva Corsinari, and the register of your child's birth.' "'The register of my child's birth?' "'The register of the birth of Andrea Cavalcanti, of your son. Is not his name Andrea?' "'I believe so,' said the Major. "'What? You believe so?' "'I dare not positively assert it, as he has been lost for so long a time.' "'Well, then,' said Monte Cristo, "'you have all the documents with you.' "'Your Excellency, I regret to say that, not knowing it was necessary to come provided with these papers, I neglected to bring them.' "'That is unfortunate,' returned Monte Cristo. "'Were they then so necessary?' "'They were indispensable.' The major passed his hand across his brow. "'Ah! Perbacco! Indispensable, were they?' "'Certainly. Certainly they were, supposing there were to be doubts raised as to the validity of your marriage, or the legitimacy of your child.' "'True,' said the major. "'There might be doubts raised.' "'In that case your son would be very unpleasantly situated.' "'It would be fatal to his interests. "'It might cause him to fail in some desirable matrimonial alliance. "'Oh, peccato!' "'You must know that in France they are very particular on these points. "'It is not sufficient, as in Italy, to go to the priest and say, "'We love each other and want you to marry us. "'Marriage is a civil affair in France.' and in order to marry in an orthodox manner, you must have papers which undeniably establish your identity. That is the misfortune. You see, I have not these necessary papers. Fortunately, I have them, though, said Monte Cristo. You? Yes. You have them? I have them. Ah, indeed said the major who seeing the object of his journey frustrated by the absence of the papers feared also that his forgetfulness might give rise to some difficulty concerning the forty-eight thousand francs ah indeed that is a fortunate circumstance yes that really is lucky for it never occurred to me to bring them i do not at all wonder at it one cannot think of everything but happily the abbe busoni thought for you he is an excellent person he is extremely prudent and thoughtful he is an admirable man said the major and he sent them to you here they are the major clasped his hands in token of admiration you married oliva cassinari in the church of san paolo del monte catini here is the priest's certificate. Yes, indeed, there it is truly, said the Italian, looking on with astonishment. And here is Andrea Cavalcanti's baptismal register, given by the curate of Saravezza. All quite correct. Take these documents, then. They do not concern me. You will give them to your son, who will, of course, 
take great care of them i should think so indeed if he were to lose them well and if he were to lose them said monte cristo in that case replied the major it would be necessary to write to the curate for duplicates and it would be some time before they could be obtained it would be a difficult matter to arrange said monte cristo almost an impossibility replied the major i am very glad to see that you understand the value of these papers i regard them as invaluable now said monte cristo as to the mother of the young man as to the mother of the young man repeated the italian with anxiety as regards the marchesa cosinari really said the major difficulties seem to thicken upon us will she be wanted in any way no sir replied monte cristo besides has she not y yes sir said the major she has paid the last debt of nature alas yes returned the italian i knew that said monte cristo she has been dead these ten years and i am still mourning her loss exclaimed the major drawing from his pocket a checked handkerchief and alternately wiping first the left and then the right eye what would you have said monte cristo we are all mortal now you understand my dear monsieur cavalcanti that it is useless for you to tell people in france that you have been separated from your son for fifteen years stories of gypsies who steal children are not at all in vogue in this part of the world and would not be believed you sent him for his education to a college in one of the provinces and now you wish him to complete his education in the parisian world that is the reason which has induced you to leave viareggio where you have lived since the death of your wife that will be sufficient you think so certainly very well then if they should hear of the separation ah yes what could i say that an unfaithful tutor bought over by the enemies of your family by the cosinari precisely had stolen away this child in order that your name might become extinct that is reasonable since he is an only son well now that all is arranged do not let these newly awakened remembrances be forgotten you have doubtless already guessed that i was preparing a surprise for you an agreeable one asked the italian ah i see the eye of a father is no more to be deceived than his heart hum said the major some one has told you the secret or perhaps you guessed that he was here that who was here your child your son your andrea i did guess it replied the major with the greatest possible coolness then he is here he is said monte cristo when the valet de chambre came in just now he told me of his arrival 
"'Oh, very well, very well,' said the Major, clutching the buttons of his coat at each exclamation. "'My dear sir,' said Monte Cristo, "'I understand your emotion. You must have time to recover yourself. I will, in the meantime, go and prepare the young man for this much-desired interview, for I presume that he is not less impatient for it than yourself.' "'I should quite imagine that to be the case,' said Cavalcanti. "'Well, in a quarter of an hour he shall be with you.' "'You will bring him, then? "'You carry your goodness so far as even to present him to me yourself?' "'No, I do not wish to come between a father and son. "'Your interview will be private. "'But do not be uneasy. "'Even if the powerful voice of nature should be silent.' "'You cannot well mistake him. "'He will enter by this door. "'He is a fine young man, of fair complexion. "'A little too fair, perhaps, pleasing in manners. "'But you will see, and judge for yourself.' "'By the way,' said the Major, "'you know I have only the two thousand francs "'which the Abbe Busoni sent me. "'This sum I have expended upon travelling expenses.' "'And—and you want money. "'That is a matter of course, my dear Monsieur Carvacanti. "'Well, here are eight thousand francs on account.' "'The Major's eyes sparkled brilliantly. "'It is forty thousand francs which I now owe you,' said Monte Cristo. "'Does your Excellency wish for a receipt?' said the Major, "'at the same time slipping the money into the inner pocket of his coat.' "'For what?' said the Count. "'I thought you might want it to show the Abbe Busoni. "'Well, when you receive the remaining forty thousand, "'you shall give me a receipt in full. "'Between honest men, such excessive precaution is, I think, quite unnecessary.' "'Yes, so it is, between perfectly upright people.' "'One word more,' said Monte Cristo. "'Say on.' "'You will permit me to make one remark?' "'Certainly. Pray do so.' "'Then I should advise you to leave off wearing that style of dress.' "'Indeed,' said the Major, regarding himself with an air of complete satisfaction. "'Yes, it may be worn at Via Regio, but that costume, however elegant in itself, has long been out of fashion in Paris.' "'That's unfortunate.' "'Oh, if you really are attached to your old mode of dress, "'you can easily resume it when you leave Paris.' "'But what shall I wear?' "'What you find in your trunks.' "'In my trunks? "'I have but one portmanteau. "'I dare say you have nothing else with you. "'What is the use of boring oneself with so many things? "'Besides, an old soldier always likes to march.' "'with as little baggage as possible.' "'That is just the case. "'Precisely so. "'But you are a man of foresight and prudence. "'Therefore you sent your luggage on before you. "'It has arrived at the Hôtel des Princes, Rue du Richelieu. "'It is there you are to take up your quarters.' "'Then in those trunks? "'I presume you have given orders to your valet de chambre "'to put in all you are likely to need.' "'your plain clothes and your uniform. 
on grand occasions you must wear your uniform that will look very well do not forget your crosses they still laugh at them in france and yet always wear them for all that very well very well said the major who was in ecstasy at the attention paid him by the count now said monte cristo that you have fortified yourself against all painful excitement prepare yourself my dear monsieur cavalcanti to meet your lost son andrea saying which monte cristo bowed and disappeared behind the tapestry leaving the major fascinated beyond expression with the delightful reception which he had received at the hands of the count end of chapter 55 okay so do you have any idea what the count is actually up to i mean you, we we figured out right that cavalcante is not cavalcante that he's somehow because abbe busoni was involved that Edmund has figured out in his multiple roles as the Abbe and as the Count of Monte Cristo, he's figured out something about this guy. Clearly, this guy needs money. And for some reason, the Count is putting him up and putting him forward, presenting him as this military stud muffin who's finally being reunited with his long-lost son, and it seems to be really important because he's spending a lot of money doing this and gone to great lengths to have it happen. I mean, he's got Busoni involved and he had to set up all of the, the travel arrangements and the finances. And wasn't he funny about the money? Just totally making this man beg for it. I guess that's not really funny about the money. That's kind of creepy about the money. But either way, wow. And we have no explanation as to why. No clue. None. At all. And we don't really know. I mean, we know who is supposed to be coming. It's going to be the long-lost son, right? I mean, that's where we're headed. But if this guy isn't really Cavalcante, then who's really the son? And why are we playing this game? And the answer is, It'll take a while to find out because this is the Count of Monte Cristo and he plays the long game. And boy, oh boy, is this setup the long game. Pieces will start to fall into place before the, the very end, but it takes its own sweet time unfolding. So next week, we'll meet this kid who's been long lost for so many years and we'll find out a little bit more about what's going on, probably be able to piece some stuff together. but. Mostly, it's just marvelous dialogue, this chapter, and a little bit more of the setup next chapter. So, thank you for your patience and your forbearance with me, and have a great week. Take care of yourself and each other, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash 
podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlit has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 